We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Luke 22, as we come now to the so-called trials and then the ultimate conviction of Christ Jesus our Lord. Warren Wiersbe said, The trial and death of Jesus Christ revealed both the wicked heart of man and the gracious heart of God. When men were doing their worst, God was doing his best. And I thought about that, that, that last quote right there, when men were doing their worst, God was doing his best. You know, And in many ways, man, things haven't changed. Huh? Our God is still like that, even though sometimes we blow it, man. He allows us to go forward in this relationship with him. You know, here they were lying he was dying. They were violent. He was silent. They were beating. He was bleeding. They wanted him in a grave, and he just wanted to save them from their sins. I mean, it's just such a contrast. When man is doing his worst, God is just shining. And we're going to see that today. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever been there. Sometimes they even have it available to watch on television. I don't know how you would have the time to do that. But there's some trial going on, and you go in there, and you kind of watch the whole thing and how it unfolds. And I know for some it can be very personal. And that's kind of the experience that we have now. As we come to this section in the, in the, in the Bible, we're going to look at Jesus' trials. And as he stood before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again, and then ultimately his conviction. And, you know, I, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a tough section because we're just kind of going through this history of what happened to him that night and then the next morning. But it's also, if you, you know, really think about it, it's, the, it's when he was just determined to go to the cross for us. And in that determination... You know, there is just an admiration. There's just this love, I think, that spills up into our hearts as we see, you know, what Jesus did for us. And, and really, I think for us as Christians, you know, there's different ways. I guess there's different approaches that people try to take in order to grow, in order to be a deeper, you know, committed Christian. But, but there's probably no better way than really asking God to show you this cross and to show you his son. You know, because the legal rules and regulations, yeah, they will change you from the outside, but it's the cross and it's the love of God that will transform you from the inside. And we see that real clear today as we come to this place. Look what it says in verse uh, 20 through 63. Um, I'm sorry, where are we at? We are in Luke chapter 22, huh? Verse 63, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and they beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and they asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. If you remember, uh, Jesus had spent the night praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then the wee hours of the morning they came. They arrested him. Uh, last week we went over this time in which Peter denied the Lord, but while Peter was there denying the Lord, Jesus was there before the high priests, 
And we read here in verses 63 through 65 about these men who mocked him and beat him. These would be what were called the temple guards, the officers assigned to that sacred building there in Jerusalem. In one sense, I mean, you think about that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the these guys that are, you know, hired to guard, so to speak, the church. They're the ones that are mocking him. They're the ones that are beating him. The Greek word translated beat means to smite. It means to actually thrash. And the word translated struck, it means not just one time, but repeated blows. We read here that they blindfolded him and they struck him on the face and they asked him saying, you know, prophesy to us, who's the one who hits you? And we know Jesus could have easily told them all the details, the, the man's name, the man's sins, the man's hairs, everything about him. But Jesus didn't stoop to their level. Why? Because he had a cross to bear. He had a world to die for. He had a church to save. You know, since he was blindfolded, he couldn't even really brace himself. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever been in a fight like that or if you ever get socked in the face. Anybody? You know, I shouldn't, shouldn't ask you to show hands. I mean, but, but at least if you're fighting and you see these guys in the, in the ring, you know, and at least they're able to kind of see it coming and somehow, you know, you know, brace themselves. But when you're blindfolded and they're just hitting you dead weight, all you can do is absorb those blows. And we see that this is just the beginning. You know, in one sense, this was the devil's night. It was his opportunity to hit God because of his hate for God. And to the best of his ability, he tortured God viciously, blasphemously. This is the night. This is what our Lord went through. Not for them, not for the world. He went through this for you. He went this, through this for me. You know, when you look at the whole chronology, he was first taken to the high priest Annas, according to John 18.13. And after that, he was taken to Caiaphas, the other high priest who was appointed by Rome. And that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. There wasn't supposed to be two high priests. But we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, that there were one appointed by Israel, the other appointed by Rome. And it was before these high priests, really, in their home, so to speak, in the privacy of their night, that Jesus was illegally condemned and convicted. You know, one of the interesting things, and you go back and you study Jewish history, and you read Josephus, and you go back and you study Roman history, they prided themselves in the, in the justice system that they had. You know, the Jews had a lot of safeguards in order to make sure that these trials were fair. You know, they weren't supposed to have a trial at night. They weren't supposed to have a trial during a feast or before a Sabbath day. If they did have a trial, all 70 members of their Sanhedrin, their you know, Supreme Court, were to be present. As a matter of fact, if a death penalty was issued, it couldn't be issued. It was illegal to be issued within the first 24 hours. Because, you know, if you're going to put somebody to death, their you know, mentality was, you know, you've got to go home and you've got to pray about it. You've got to think about it. There was supposed to be this law of mercy. And what we find, and there was other things, so many injustices in the Jewish court here violated in Jesus' so-called trial. 
But they weren't really interested in justice. We see that. Because just in case you get somebody who says, you know what, uh, Jesus was a criminal, man. They put him to death. No, he was without sin. And we're going to see that time and time again today. They weren't interested in justice. They just wanted him dead, condemned, and convicted. But they had to go through the motions, right? They had to go through the whole formality. And so we read in verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe me. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Again, like I said, they arrested him probably, you know, one o'clock in the morning, midnight. We don't know for sure. They took him to Annas and then Caiaphas, and he was already condemned. They locked him up, and in the morning, probably 5, 6 in the morning, they brought him to the Sanhedrin, again, the 70-member council. And it's here that we pick it up in verse 66. They bring the Lord before the council, even though the verdict has already been wrought, just determined, I guess you could say, to go through the motions. And they ask Jesus, point blank, tell us if you're the Messiah. Tell us, are you the Christ? As if they're really interested, right? But Jesus says, you know what? You won't believe. You're not open. You're not open to me. You're not open to dialogue. And you know, just as a quick side note right there, I think that many people are like that, right? I mean, you know, they might come to church. They might ask you a question um, about the T-shirt you're wearing or whatever it is about Jesus, but they're not really open, You know, they're not really to that place where, you know what, you can share with them the truth and you can share with them the cross and the resurrection and the love of Jesus Christ. And you can share with them how this Bible makes so much sense in life and how it brings love and joy and peace, how it's a blessing when you discover God's ways in in marriage and parenting and life and work and in every issue. But for whatever reason, a lot of times, man, you know, they're, they're just not open. We see that today in the issue of uh, marriage. Uh, I know a lot of you here probably went, supported the biblical values of marriage. We went to Chick-fil-A on Wednesday, you know, 17 youth and a group of adults and a whole bunch of people at night and guys and gals. And, you know, and, and you know it was a blessing, man, huh, what the Lord did that day, man. It really was. I thought for sure they were going to run out of chicken, man, because there was just so many people there, man. And I thought for sure it was going to take forever, but man, we went through that line pretty quick, you know. But to me, it's just so simple to understand that a man was made for a woman. To me, it's so easy to understand that a kid needs a mom and a dad. To me, it's so simple to understand that you don't make the rules, they don't make the rules, the God who made us made the rules. But, you know, they want to live by their cultural expectations and You know, what's right for you might not be right for him. Well, where do you draw the line in that? Where? I mean, is it okay? You know, well, I really like, you know, children. Yeah, you really like children. You you feel that inside of you. That doesn't make it right. 
You know, where do you draw the line? A man with an animal? I mean, eventually we have to have a place where there's an authority. And for us, we know it's simple. It's so simple. God and his word, the one who died and rose again, he's the one that I'm going to follow. And he's the one that says that every jot, every tittle would come to pass. He's the one that said that we've given you the scriptures and they cannot be broken. You know, some people think that Christians, you know, are not reasonable, that they check their brains in at the door. No, Christians are very reasonable. We have faith that's founded on fact. We have a Bible that's true and it's been given to us, you know, so clear the prophecies that have been fulfilled. There are people with, you know, IQs that are skyrocketed, man. They're way up there. They're brilliant men and they're Christians. Why? Because it's credible. But what ends up happening is this man, these concrete hearts, these hard hearts, for whatever reason, it's kind of explained in John chapter 3, they just don't want to let go of their sin. And so what ends up happening? They're not really open. Oh, tell us if you're the Christ. And Jesus said, you know what? Here's the deal. If I tell you, if I tell you, you're still not going to believe me. And if we started dialoguing and I asked you questions, you wouldn't even, you know, talk to me because you are not a reasonable people. You see, that's where the Lord was at this place. You know, and there are times, you guys, where we talk and the Lord will lead you by the Spirit. You got to be sensitive to Him, but there's other times when you don't. You don't, you don't have time to waste your time with some people who are not really open and the Lord will show you. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. In Proverbs 23, verse 9, it says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. We're going to see that tonight with these religious leaders, and even more so with this guy named Herod. But even though Jesus was facing death, he didn't want to waste his breath with them. He did, however, speak Simple truths, again, there in verse 69, he just says, okay, well, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And so they say, oh, so you're the Son of God? Is that, was that what you're saying? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And rather than opening themselves up to that tremendous truth, they counted him a liar, convicted him of blasphemy, something that in the Jewish law makes one worthy of the death penalty. You know, and if they would have just listened, man, just listen. I mean, the greatest words ever spoken, the greatest works ever done, the greatest love ever manifested. This was God come in the flesh, right? The Son of God. What does that mean? Now, I know some people wonder about that. Well, what does that mean, the Son of God? Jesus wasn't God. He was just the Son of God. Okay, so what are you trying to say? I mean, when someone has that type of mentality, you're trying to say that God went and had celestial sex one day and there was this God that was born. Are you a Mormon? Or are you a Jehovah Witness who says, no, there was this time, you know, before our time when God kind of made something and, you know, calls him Jesus? Is that what Son of God means? Well, you know, when I read my Bible, it's pretty clear that 
the people in the scriptures that Jesus was communicating to in his day, they understand what it meant. They understood what it meant. When he was claiming to be the son of God, he was claiming to be God the son. That's why every time, whether it's John 8 or John 10, different times in the scriptures, whenever he would say that, what would they do? They want to pick up stones to stone him, right? I mean, it's clear. You know, and a lot of people wonder, well, how does it work? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. How can, you know, Jesus be the Son? And the simple answer is that He's simply always been the Son. Always. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist, otherwise He wouldn't be God. There's not three gods, there's one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Son has always been the Son. Always. It's very simple. And so when Jesus makes this claim right here, he says that he's God, not only this title, but he says right here in verse 69, you're going to see me one day, the Son of Man, that's a messianic title out of Daniel chapter 7, will sit on the right hand of the power of God. (laughs) And so you're saying you're the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the power of God. Wait a minute, that's the place of God. And yet we know that this is the seed of our Savior, God's Son. Warren Risby said this, that our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father is a truth that is often repeated in the New Testament. This is a place of honor, authority, and power. And by claiming this honor, Jesus was claiming to be God. That's why they said, that's enough, you know, blasphemy. You read the Gospels and even the high priest, who wasn't supposed to tear his clothes, he tore his clothes. And what we find is that Jesus here is making this statement. And, you know, if you think about it, I guess in a technical sense, he got convicted for simply revealing who he was, revealing his majesty, revealing his glory. You know, when you read the Bible about God, the Father, and we don't see any form but the Son, you know, and you can kind of visualize Him there at the right hand of the throne, right? That's kind of what you're thinking. You're kind of thinking, it's kind of like, you know, that guy in the business over there, he gets a special parking spot, you know, or when you're in the meeting, you know, well, he's the vice president. Well, it's not really like that. I know we always want to think in that visual way. It's more of a title, then it is a place where he sits down. You know, it's this place of honor. It's this place, like Jesus said in Matthew 28, where all authority had been given to him. You know, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, that beautiful verse, speaking of Jesus, it says, bring the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Think about that. Everything is just being upheld by his word, right? This is amazing. It says right there, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an amazing verse right there about the right hand of God because the priests, they would never sit down. They, would, they were always working, man, always working. They would never sit down. But Jesus, the high priest, the, you know, the one who fulfilled that position, he was able to sit down. Why? Because he finished the work. When he purged our sins and died for us on Calvary, he finished the work. And he sits down right there on this power. It's an amazing thing. You wonder, well, what does he do with that power? We'll look at, we, we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who even was even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I remember one time I was talking to a, a guy who was on staff at another church, and I was there, and he was talking about this time in his life where he backslid. And he said he drifted so far away that everyone had given up on him. He said he was so far gone that he just knew that, you know, nobody was even praying for him. And I remember another guy that was there, was in the conversation, he said, Jesus was praying for you. Jesus was praying for you. And when I think about that, because I always wonder, Lord, what does it mean that he sits there at the right hand, you know, making intercession for us? Is that just like a thing of salvation? I mean, how does that work? But I, I, I'm just listening to, to teachers and getting into the Greek language and really studying this out. It means just what, you know, it, it, it sounds like, man, that, you know, not only do you have your loved ones praying for you, which is a beautiful thing, and your spouse and your kids. Don't you just love it when the kids pray, man? Whenever I'm desperate, I ask the kids to pray. <laughs> but, man, you guys, we have Jesus praying for us. You know, it's a beautiful thing. The Lord brings this up at such an amazing time. And again, there's another real interesting facet here that I think is noteworthy at this point is that even though Jesus was literally going through trials, he just has 100% confidence. And I just love that, man. 100% confident that the way of the cross is the way of victory. That in this humiliation, there would one day be that exaltation. That after this pain and time, there would be that gain for eternity. You know, and I just love that, you guys. I love that. I pray that we would remember that the next time we find ourselves in difficult situations, it doesn't matter how terrible and tragic the trials are, you can have 100% confidence. That God will finish the work. You just got to make sure you take the way of the cross. And for the Christians, it's real simple. Jesus made it clear. You got to deny yourself. See, all the problems that we have are when we fail to do that. When we want to, you know, feed ourselves. When we want to exalt self. want to make it all about self. Self-esteem. Things like that. The Lord says, no, that's not the way it is for Christians. Christians... Take up your cross and deny yourself. And I promise you, you can be confident in this, that one day when you take up your cross, there will be a crown. You see, the Jews were determined that Jesus would die. But the problem was under Roman authority, they didn't have that ability to carry out the death sentence. And so we read in chapter 23, that the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You'll notice that they changed the charges, right? You know, they knew that Pilate would never agree with them to put Jesus to death over this, you know, religious truth. And so they invent three lies. Number one, they said that Jesus was perverting the nation. Number two, they said that Jesus was forbidding them to pay taxes. And then number three, that Jesus wants to overthrow Caesar 
as king. And, you know, it's so sad to see when leaders lead with lies. None of these accusations were true, but Pilate did want to talk about something. There in verse 3, it says, Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now again, when you read the other Gospels, and I do encourage you to do this, you know, read Mark 14, read Matthew 26, read John 18. You guys, you know, who knows when we're going to be in the Gospels again, you know, as a church, as a church. And you don't want to just let this one slip by. A lot of times we do that on Sundays. Oh yeah, whatever the study was. And it doesn't matter how good or dazzling it was. The main thing is you got to get the word. The word of God. And you go home and then you let it sink in as a congregation. God is speaking to us now about this time that he goes to the cross for us. And you don't want to just let it slip by. When you read these gospels, you find that you know, Pilate got to know Jesus a little bit. There was more to the conversation. There's a, a lot going on here. And in the process, he said, you know what? In all reality, I see that he's not, he's not guilty. Pilate was warned by his wife who had a dream not to give in. But the problem, and we're going to see this, was that Pilate was also a politician who wanted to please men and not God. He wanted to keep the peace, even if it was at the price of injustice. He was looking for loopholes. How can I get out of this? You know, and if I could just say this again, lessons to be learned, you know, because he is about to be the man. And I don't care how many times you wash your hands. He is about to be the man from the technical perspective that would put almighty God on a cross. And the reason was that he was a man who was the pleaser of men. He wanted to make everybody happy. He was kind of like that, that politician, you know, that not all of them are like this, but I think many of them are because they want to be reelected, right? That's their ambition. Not just leading with integrity. No, I, I got to kind of be reelected here, go down in history as the one that everybody liked. You know, and I just want to encourage you guys, just warn you, look at what it can lead to. Don't be a person who wants to please everybody. You know, the Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. As a matter of fact, don't be a person who wants to please anybody but God first. And you're going to be tested in these areas. Father right here just says, man, how can I get out of it? How can I make everybody happy? How can I find peace in this situation, you know? And, and then he hears, oh, he's from Galilee. He started in Gal- He began in Galilee. And so he says in verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, 
arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Man, as soon as Pilate knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, man, he sent him away. And he thought for sure that he had evaded the issue of Jesus. This Herod we're reading of here was the one who massacred the infants of Bethlehem in Matthew 2. This was the Herod who killed John the Baptist. This was a man Jesus called a fox in Luke 13:32, And it was a derogatory statement to say the least, right? And when you look at these guys, and I don't know for sure, but I think if I was to compare the two, I think Herod is even worse than Pontius Pilate. You know, all Herod wanted to do was see a trick or two from Jesus, some sign or a wonder. He had heard about Jesus, and he was glad to see him, but for the wrong reason, right? And so Jesus didn't even talk to him. He didn't give him the time of day. You know, and think about that for a second. You know, I mean, I'm so grateful when God talks to me. You know, and sometimes he, you know, tells me words that, I, that are kind of hard to hear, you know, about my pride or about whatever it is. And, but I, I'm so grateful that God would talk to me. Think about the hopelessness of a life where God would no longer talk to you. That's where Herod was. You know, and what we find in life and even today is that there are people like this, superficial. They don't really want Jesus' teaching or truth. They just want his tricks. And they'll go to the churches over there that make them feel good, but don't make them good. They live by emotions and experiences. And what I've found when you go to a church that really doesn't teach you the Bible, you get excited, but the next time you want, you go, you want a greater experience. It's like a high, and then you need another high, and a higher high. I don't need a higher high. Just give me the truth. I want the message from God, not the miracles from God. If I never experience another miracle from God in my life, It will be okay because I have had the greatest miracles already. Number one, Christ rose from the dead. And number two, I rose from the dead. That's all I need. Why are people seeking signs and wonders and experiences and feelings when we have God's truth? And part of me says that because I know that some people, they go to these churches where it makes them feel good. And I've seen over the years, the 23 years I've been involved in ministry, that so many times those are the ones that fall away. Because it is the truth of God's word that will root you and ground you in life. Not the feelings, because feelings come and feelings go. We walk by faith and not by sight. But a lot of people are like Herod. I want to see a trick or two. I want to see a miracle. I don't want a message I don't want to, I want to, and that's where he was, and it's such a sad place to be. And so what ends up happening? Well, when Jesus doesn't give them what they want, they treat him with contempt, even mocking him and sending him away. (laughs) Go back to wherever you came from. You know, and and that's, man, I was thinking about this whole thing, you know, because I know a lot of times uh, we need to be reminded of this constantly. I need to be reminded of this constantly, that this is really all about Jesus. When we need to exalt Jesus, 
We need to. We can't treat him with contempt. We can't despise him. We can't send him away. Why? Because I've got ministry to do and I've got, you know, whatever it is, family to take care of. And, you know, the Lord wants us to take care of those responsibilities and our priorities in life. But you can't really do any of those things right unless you're in right relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He Himself purged us of our sins. The Father points to the Son. The Spirit points to the Son. And that's why we have to make sure we don't despise Him, but we exalt Him. You know, it's so sad what we read in verse 12, how this whole thing restored the friendship of Herod and Pilate. It's so sad to see how birds of a fallen feather often flock together, right? (laughs) But what ends up happening Jesus is sent back to Pilate and he's forced into a decision. In verse 13, it says, Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And this this whole thing is like a drama, man. When you read the Gospel of John, you find seven times, you know, Pilate just goes back and forth with the people and Jesus and you know, have you guys ever been in that situation where you're just kind of like walking around? You don't know what to do, right? That's where Pilate was. As a matter of fact, four times in this chapter, in Luke, Jesus' innocence is mentioned. Three times by Pilate. Herod finds no fault in him. Jesus didn't deserve death. Pilate found no fault in him. And so what do you do to the one in whom you find no fault? You scourge him. <laughs> Chastise him, right? And that's what he says he would do. Pilate says, I'll, I'll scourge him and then I'll release him after that. And that was his pathetic plan to try to please man at the expense of justice. And so he had Jesus scourged. According to one historian, during a flogging, a victim was tied to a post, leaving his back entirely exposed. And the Romans used a whip. It was called the flagellum which consisted of small pieces of bone and metal attached to a number of leather strands. The number of strikes isn't recorded in the Gospels, but during the flogging, the skin was stripped from the back, and then the bloody mass of muscle reaching to the bones. Extreme blood loss occurred from the beating, weakening the victim, perhaps to the point of being unconscious. The victim often died from the scourging. And if you guys, you know, seen The Passion of the Christ, you kind of get a little picture of what our God went through for us. And I remember the first time I saw that movie. And again, there are things about the movie that are probably too Catholic, right? But we know that there are things in the movie that show us His love. That God would go through this for us. You know, when I saw it the first time, I remember when I went to the movies and I saw the passion of the Christ, I remember I had a headache because I was crying. I was sobbing. In the theater. And so I got the movie, and I remember one time, you know, I, I, I went home, and it was, just like, it was a tough thing for me to do, but I put it in the, in the DVD player, and I watched it again, and I was just weeping and sobbing, and I had a headache. 
And I thought, well, I should watch it again while I'm here. And I said, no, I don't want a headache, man, again. You know, but I don't know about you, but man, when you just see what he did for us, it just, it, it, it's supposed to, it's supposed to communicate God's love. You know, because a lot of times, man, we go through life and we never change. We never change. And you want to know something? You know, God, he still loves you, man. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then praise God. When you die, you're going to heaven. But a lot of Christians, they don't really like, you know, you don't see that, that just that radical transformation and I think it's because of the fact that they just cannot see the cross. And they cannot see God's love. And they cannot make that love personal. And it's a struggle sometimes because maybe, and I don't want to get psychological here, but you know there is some understanding in knowing that what you went through in life, maybe you were always, always put down. Maybe you always enjoined those who you know, put you down and you put yourself down. And that's all you've ever experienced in life. And it's so hard sometimes for those type of people to receive God's love because they think they're not worthy. But you want to know something? You know, we're not worthy because of our sin. But we are worthy because we are created in his image. And you have value, not because of what you've done, but because of the fact that God values you. You are precious to him. If you were the only one who would have ever believed, he would have still died. And we got to see that. This cross is a tremendous truth that will change our life. Pilate says, oh, he's innocent. I'll just scourge him. You know, and we, he probably thought if they just saw Jesus after this, and everything that the Lord had gone through, then, you know, they would show mercy, right? We read in John chapter 19, verse 5, that after Jesus had been scourged, he came out wearing the crown of thorns and the people and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, remember this? Behold the man. You know, more than likely just wanting to show them, look what he's gone through, man. You know, can you cut him some slack? Can you show him some mercy? Really, what has he done? That's so bad. Nothing. But they were so bad, huh? And when God was at his best, man was at his worst. And we read in verse 18 their response. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. The Bible says in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 
you know, and you hear the, the crowd and the voices and the popular opinions. But we got to make a stand. You know, here we see Pilate offers them that opportunity. But they chose the murderer, the one who took life. They chose him over the Messiah, the, the maker and giver of life. The crowd was insistent and demanding. And even though he knew with every fiber of his being that this is not the right thing to do, Pilate allows the people to prevail and trumps justice. And he gives to them Barabbas for life and Jesus for death. He delivered Jesus. Look what it says right there at the end of verse 25. He delivered Jesus to their will. And you read the whole thing and, you know, you say it's so awful. It's so awful. But then, as Christians, you say, but it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful what God would do. That Jesus was delivered to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry, Lord. But I'm so thankful, Lord. I'm so thankful. And even though God did not take away any part or portion of the freedom that man possesses to choose, God will use all this nonsense and all these things to do wonderful things, good things, even for people that are rebellious like us. Of course, this is intended to break us of our rebellion by such an amazing love. You know, these guys that chose to send him to the cross, they're going to stand before his father one day. They were free to choose, just like you're free to choose. You don't have to come to church if you don't really want to. You know what ends up happening? A lot of times the young people, they're dragged to church, they become drug babies. No, that's what Lecrae said. <laughs> and then they get older and they choose not to go anymore. And it just breaks your heart. It does. You don't have to come. You know, God says, hey, come, let's fellowship together. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling. You don't have to. Everybody's free to choose. And here we see they were free to choose. But at the same time, God was accomplishing his purpose. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 again. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, a lot, a lot of our Christianity, a lot of it is probably deeper than I think a lot of us are. You know, we have rules and regulations. Don't get me wrong. We have a, a grip of those. We've got a lot of things that we shouldn't do and should do. There, there are a lot of those. But you can't have rules and regulations without relationship. Relationship with God is so important. And, and A.W. Tozer has got a really good book. It's called um, The... Uh, oh, it's about his attributes. I don't remember the name of it right now. But in the beginning of the book, I remember he just talks about how the most important thing in all of your life as a Christian is your view of God. How do you see God? And for us, as we go through the Gospels and we've studied the life of Christ, he's shown us God. And we see how God is so much love, so much humility, 
all because of the fact that, you know, Hebrews 12, verse 2, you know, he, he wants to be with us forever. And that's such a beautiful thought that we need to have in the forefront of our life. You know, in closing, I just want to give you guys a couple of things. In the end, just to close with a couple of questions, as you look at this whole thing, number one, let's ask this question. Who's really on trial? Who's really on trial? Was it Jesus? I don't know, man. He said, you know what? I'm going to lay down my life. You want to know who was really on trial? The Jewish leaders were. The Roman leaders were. This crowd was on trial. Pilate was on trial. What are you going to do? See, what, what's going on here? Who's really guilty, right? That's the first question that we have to understand. And for us, we need to understand that the most important question we have in life is what do you, what do you say about Jesus? Who is he? Who is Jesus Christ in your life? And not just the theological answer. Yes, the theological answer has to be right. He's got to believe that he's a God, almighty God, second person of the Trinity. You've got to believe that he died on the cross and he bore all your sins. He was put in a grave and he rose again and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Yes, you've got to believe the theological you know, issues and you've got to make sure that's right. But, but even more so than that, more than just where is he in your brain, is, is just where is he in your heart? Our Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, where is he in your life? Who's on trial? We're on trial. And the second question is this, who really put him on the cross? Who really put him on the cross? And there's so many things we could talk about. We could be here until 12. But I don't want to do that to you guys. But you know, a, a real problem among people, probably among Christians too, is they just love to blame others. Well, the reason I'm like this is because you're like that. You guys ever do that? Yeah. Rather than just, you know what, taking the, the responsibility, you know what, I blew it. Even though you, you jacked up, <laughs> I jacked up too. <laughs> just take responsibility. Who put Jesus on the cross? It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jewish leaders of the angry mob. I did. I put him there. You see, that's what sin does. You know, Gia Lucid, she has a really cool song. It's called Remind Me. And it goes like this. It was my sin that drove the nails into your hands. And feet. And though I managed to forget you, Lord, you've never forgotten me. No, Lord, you've never forgotten me. And as we go through this section right here, and we're heading to the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray you guys, we would know God. <laughs> That even when man is at his worst, and sometimes we blow it, and I'm not making light of that, but there you're going to find God at his best. Here today, just saying, you know what? Let's get this straight. Let's get this relationship right. Let's walk in love and obedience and holiness and grace. 
Let's get rid of those things in your life that really, you, you know, they're, they're, they're not just, you know, weighing you down and they're holding you down. Get rid of the sins and let's receive Christ as Lord and Savior of our life. All of us here, you know, once again, that's my prayer. And Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, as just as we kind of go through this section, I know it's a little difficult just kind of going through history and what happened that night, but Lord, we see what you did for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to minister to our hearts. I pray you bless my brothers and sisters here, Lord, with an understanding, just a deeper understanding of what took place on Calvary, Lord. We're Calvary Chapel for a reason, Lord. And I ask, Lord God, that you would just remind us that your word says, he who knew no sin, Lord God, was made sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God. Bless your beautiful church, your beautiful sons and daughters. Lord, bless them. Speak to them. Like, you know, we we heard today, there was a man that God wouldn't speak to. But there are people here today that God speaks to. Thank you, Lord. And I pray if there are any here today who don't know you, they don't really know you, that there would be an absolute surrender turning from sin and trusting in Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember, that Jesus loves you.